just a moment ago. I um, was a bit hasty. I don't know if anyone noticed trying to get up here and preach. Um, I saw the directive. It said forever sermon. And um, I guess I thought that was permission to um, give a long sermon of some form. Anyway. Let's go to God in prayer and then locate in your Bibles 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the good news of this day and every day. That Jesus Christ is risen. That he has satisfied the righteous demands of justice on the cross. Paying the price for our sins imperfect once and for all sacrifice, that He has defeated death and the grave, that He has conquered within us who are raised with Him, the world, the flesh, and the devil, that He has risen indeed in truth bodily, and that He has spiritually raised us up with Him who believe in Him, and that we also will be fully, truly raised on the last day. Therefore we live not as those under the shadow of death, but rather in the joyful liberty of the light of the risen Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would now make us attentive by the Holy Spirit to your word. We pray that we would listen attentively, that you would um, quell any uh, disruption within our hearts and minds, that you would prevent any distraction externally, and that we might focus on you and on your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and on the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for this privilege, this opportunity, and I ask, Lord God, that you would minister to each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read from verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. 
at the conclusion of this letter in which Paul addresses a congregation that is afflicted by idolatry, immorality, and injustice, disorder on every hand, the Apostle Paul presents and represents what he delivered to them at the very beginning. If they haven't gotten the message throughout this letter, if they have not received his rebuke for any number of things that they were doing inappropriately in the life of their church. The Apostle Paul brings them back to a time when they were lost, dead in their trespasses and sins, following the, uh, the, the, the religions and the philosophies of their pagan city. And he calls their mind back to the message that he first proclaimed, which... Many, most, perhaps all of us have heard before, but we must rehear again and again, lest we forget. That is the message of Jesus Christ crucified for sins, and the message of Jesus Christ risen from the dead and reigning forever. And the text before us, the apostle presents, first of all, the place of Christ's victory over death. He talks about he was buried. Having discussed the uh, crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins, he says he was buried. And that points us to a grave, to a place where bodies are laid. And when we reflect further to what we've reflected on the past week and previous gatherings that Jesus died for our sins and so His death had a purpose, we, we, we know that that purpose really is understood in light of where it ends up. At, at the first, it did not seem that His death had a purpose to His followers, to those who watched Him. Could there be anything more pointless then such a good man in the eyes of the world hung up very much like a piece of meat in the butcher's, bleeding out in a most undignified way, so undignified that Roman society has no depictions of crucifixion except a couple of drawings that were meant as obscene, graffiti, carved into the wall to mock. Jesus suffered the indignity of such a death. Those of His time, uh, those even preceding Him, would speak very rarely of crucifixion and they would not go into elaborate detail. People knew what they were talking about, but when they would speak of it, they would say that it was unbefitting and unbecoming of anyone. Maybe slaves. And perhaps we remember from Philippians where the Apostle Paul says that Jesus Christ emptied Himself and took upon Himself the form of a slave. And so Jesus endured for our sins the most undignified, unpleasant, tortuous, disgraceful death. But when Jesus was buried, they didn't know that He did that for our sins. 
It was at the time of Passover, was it not? And perhaps as they gathered for the Paschal meal, they might have heard the question, what makes this night different from all the others? And such a question weighs very heavily on people who have just lost their best friend. A mother who has just lost her son. Brothers who have just lost their brother. Yes, they might be able to recite the stated answers with which they were catechized from infancy, but there was something else that made this night different from all the others. An empty place at the table. Someone whose face they used to see, but would not anymore. Someone whose voice they used to hear, someone whose laugh they used to hear, and it was not there anymore. Why? Because he was buried. It is a sobering thought that all who are born will, in a manner of speaking, be buried. Death is no respecter of persons, of status, of class, of ethnicity, of sex or sexuality, or of any of the various other identities that the church at Corinth might have been wrapped up in in some way. Death is indiscriminately prejudiced. It singles all of us out at some time for its dark embrace. It is a shocking thought then that the sinless creator of the universe who righteously passed a penalty of death on mankind of high treason would himself be born and eventually submit to that death, death which is the wages of sin, and would be buried with the rest of us under the soil that He Himself made. The death and burial of Jesus Christ cannot be denied. It is a matter of historical fact and record. The Apostle Paul is not just saying this, that he was buried because he has to. He's saying it because it is established. Jesus really died. Jesus was really and truly buried. Modern scholars are not necessarily the be-all, end-all of objective truth, considering any number of things that they might come up with hypothetically. But... They are largely agreed on these facts. Jesus was buried after crucifixion by a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin named Joseph of Arimathea. He was buried in a tomb carved from stone demonstrating Joseph's wealth and status, likely in the place that Joseph had meant to be buried himself. The location of that burial place was, though lost to us, was known to Jews who opposed Christ, and to Jews who followed Christ alike. Joseph of Arimathea, again of the Jewish Sanhedrin, was unlikely to be a Christian invention as he was from the very court that conducted the judicial murder of Jesus. 
Why would a character like this be given such prominence and honor in the burial story of Jesus if it were not true? Where was this man when they were unjustly trying Jesus? Where was his voice? He seems to surface quite timidly after it's too late. In any case, no competed burial story exists. All of this... This death, this burial was in accordance with the Scriptures. Isaiah 53 verse 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was buried. The text not only says that he was buried, it does say that he was risen. So when we think about His burial, we do so in the light of Him being risen. But before they could confirm that He was risen, there was this question of the empty tomb. Because if you go to the grave of a loved one, and you discover the soil has been disturbed, something seems deeply suspicious about all of this. And um, uh, you, you... Decide you'll, you'll take matters in your own hands. You can't deal with the bureaucracy of it all. And so you start digging and the soil is very loose. And you get to the coffin and there is no one in it. Or perhaps you don't even have to do any digging. You arrive at your loved one's grave place and there is a pit. What do you do with that? There was a time when we had the, uh, the resurrection men, these uh, grave robber, uh, robbers who would go and dig up bodies and sell them for experimentation and all sorts. Uh, but that's not really something that we have going on. What, what did the disciples think when they came upon the empty tomb. In fact, what did the women think when they were the first to arrive at the empty tomb? And they're greeted by an angelic being who communicates that He is not here, but He is risen. Well, they believed it, but then they go to the disciples and they say what they saw and heard. And the disciples did not really believe it immediately. The empty tomb is, again, something that is unquestionable that there was no body left where Jesus was buried. Even as we continue to think about the place of Jesus' victory over death, consider the the powerful message of that place. The, The tomb which once filled with the body of Jesus now sits empty three days after Jesus' burial. And is still empty. To this day, wherever it may be. Jesus was buried, but His body wasn't there anymore. And it is not there anymore. The resurrection of Jesus from a grave, the sight of which was known to all parties, both those for and against Jesus, including government officials, could never have been openly proclaimed in Jerusalem if Jesus was still entombed. People going around saying, Jesus is not in His grave. He is risen. The Sanhedrin could have checked it out. No, His body is there. 
The disciples going around proclaiming Jesus is risen. Pontius Pilate, who had ordered the tomb to be sealed and watched, could go and check it out. No, his body is still in there. Skeptical disciples who, who did not and felt within themselves they could not believe anything miraculous had happened to Jesus' body could have gone and did go, but they could have gone. And they would have found if Jesus wasn't risen, the body of Jesus. But rather, all of these parties, upon further investigation, discovered that indeed the tomb was empty. No one, regardless of where they stood on the issue, could deny the reality of the empty tomb. All of His disciples found when they visited it, it was the place where they laid Him. They didn't get confused. They knew where He was buried. And they knew that He was no longer buried there. The best that Jesus' opponents could come up with was that His disciples must have stolen the body. And yet, there were other things that simply did not add up. For example, when you're stealing a body, do you take time to unwrap the grave clothes and neatly fold them at the place? I think you get in and you get out of there fairly quickly. He was buried. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And among the things that he delivered as of first importance was that truth that he was buried. But that's not all that he says. He says that he was buried and that he was raised. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So we see not only the place of Christ's victory over death, we see proof of Christ's victory over death. I know we sing a song that's sometimes that says, an empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. And that is true. But for many, perhaps most, an empty grave in and of itself is not enough. You can show people the grave sites of many a great man or woman, but the site of Jesus' grave has never really been verified with 100% certainty. If you go to any of the available options, including the traditional garden tomb that people visit in Jerusalem, they are indeed empty. But the place is not enough. You see, so long as all you have is an empty tomb, then the rumor that was circulated they stole the body. Still carries great weight. The place is not enough. More proof is needed. So, so Paul doesn't emphasize the place. He moves on from the burial of Jesus to greater proof. The people to whom Christ appeared in the flesh bodily after His resurrection. The list he provides in the text which we read is not meant to be understood as a comprehensive chronology of all of Jesus' appearances, but it is rather a reassurance that Jesus not only really died, but He really rose from the dead 
And lots of people saw him at different times, in different places. Some alone, some in small groups, some in large groups. All of these people are credible witnesses, mostly alive at the time of Paul writing this letter. In other words, he's saying to that congregation, you can fact check this. You can verify this. Uh, Again, this is in principle agreed on by even secular scholarship. You see, on, on multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups experienced in some way appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. Those who do not even believe in the resurrection of Jesus will nonetheless affirm some experience of Jesus by His followers. This, we might say, agnostic or even atheistic scholarship may not agree on the nature or meaning of these appearances, but the weight of evidence in favor of the appearances is too credible. Paul quotes a solid list of eyewitnesses. He had personal acquaintance with some of them. Peter, the twelve, five hundred people, James, all of the apostles, the leaders of the early church. These constitute multiple independent attestations. People who said, we have seen with our eyes Jesus risen from the dead. No one seriously seems to dispute the uh, circumstances around Jesus' birth, do they? I I mean, at Christmas time, I I don't hear a lot of people questioning whether Jesus was actually laid in a manger. Indeed, the Christmas season sees depictions of Christ's birth in various ways, um, plays, Television, films, greeting cards. The horrible context of his birth, his infancy, being wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, a feeding trough for animals, later being carried by his mother and father through the night in desperate flight to Egypt to escape a baby-murdering king. People accept that even though everything about it in itself is filled with despair, poverty, the shadow of death, injustice, murder, and death. It really is the Easter message that gives the Christmas message its significance and beauty. But oh, let's let's talk about the Christmas story and affirm the Christmas story and cast no aspersions on on the horrors of the Christmas story. But for some reason, whenever Easter time comes around and people start talking about the resurrection, people want to talk about um, a spiritual resurrection. A resurrection which is not... You know, he, he lives within our hearts. Yes, indeed. But that's totally different to what Paul is talking about. And in fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
has more witnesses who were living and verifying his resurrection than the horrible circumstances of his birth. Very few people. Do we have any record of them testifying to his birth? There's, there's an infancy narrative or two. There's only one narrative that features the manger. There's some shepherds. Sometime later, there's a few uh, magi from the east. They're not from around there, and no one knows where they went afterwards. So, but here are hundreds of people who are testifying, we have seen Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And Paul presents them as living, verifying witnesses of the power of Christ over the grave. I want you to think of the list that would have carried great weight for Paul and those who received it, but perhaps we just read through it. Um, Cephas, Peter. Peter, you should recall, attempted to kill one of the temple guard who came to arrest Jesus. He um, managed to slice off one of his ears. Who, who, let's be honest, who just goes for a person's ear? That's just going to make someone insanely mad. He's asking for um, beats when he does that. Well, he runs away. He hoods up and he lurks around outside the court with the servants. And three times he denies ever knowing or following Jesus. Peter would die proclaiming Jesus is risen. What changed? What happened? Jesus has risen. Think of the twelve. Cut down to eleven, but they added a chap named Matthias who was close to them all. There they are cowering behind closed doors in absolute disbelief, weighed down by grief and despair. They thought someone else must have taken the body when it went missing. And they are filled with pain and deep soul agony that their best friend of the past three years has been killed. They were terrified that any one of them could be next. They would all eventually, in one way or another, give their lives proclaiming that Jesus is risen. The only one who was not killed died in exile. What changed? Jesus is risen. And think, think, think still about the twelve and the astonishing um, uh, turnaround in their life. A man named Charles, more commonly called Chuck Colson, he was one of President uh, Richard Nixon's hatchet men who would um, later spend time in prison over his involvement in the Watergate scandal. He would become a Christian and would found the Prison Fellowship, the world's largest Christian nonprofit for prisoners, former prisoners, and their families. And he was a leading advocate for justice reform. Chuck Colson wrote, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? 
Because twelve men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for forty years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled twelve of the most powerful men in the world, and we couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. Are you telling me that twelve apostles could keep a lie for forty years? Absolutely impossible. Paul continues his list. James, James the son of Mary, and therefore we might also say, as Paul does in Galatians, the Lord's brother. Jesus' own family did not believe in him when he was alive, including James. There's a very brief anecdote where Jesus' family are gathered outside the place where he's teaching and they communicate to others around that he is insane. James would later become the leader of the Jerusalem church and would die a martyr proclaiming that his older brother Jesus is Lord and is risen from the dead. I have a twin brother who is 18 minutes older than me. I would not doubt, I love my brother. I love my brother very much. He's a faithful pastor of a, another local church in Angel Islington. But if he started saying that he was the Lord and people started saying he was risen from the dead, I would not die for him. I would not die for that. Unless I was absolutely confident it was true. Again, I love my brother. But I'm not giving my life proclaiming that he's Lord. James did. Jesus would appear to all of the apostles. He would appear to a group of church leaders greater than the twelve. He would appear to hundreds. All of these people had seen Him after His resurrection. There are only two viable options. The body was stolen or Jesus is risen. To say that the body was stolen defies evidence. To say that Jesus is risen defies experience. And this is the very essence of faith. The conviction and assurance of things that are out of our sight and beyond the rational comprehension of our mind, but to which all of the evidence, even though it is without our experience, nonetheless points. Jesus is risen. And so we, 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 we come to the final thing I want you to see this morning. Not only the place of His victory over death, not only proof of His victory over death, but the power of Christ's victory over death. In the list, you'll notice that I left someone out. Paul, the one who's writing this. And while all of the testimonies that I just mentioned testify and illustrate to the power of Christ's victory over death, Paul in particular. Here is a man who has sinned and the wages of sin is death. 
And he knows that he has every right to die for the crimes he's committed against Christ. He actually says of himself in these verses that he is one untimely born. That is to say, a late arrival. Born way past the due date. Bringing up the rear. He accepted the resurrection pretty late in the game. But he did accept the resurrection. Be encouraged, friends. Jesus, who overcame death, can overcome your stubborn unbelief. Paul says he is the least of the apostles. He says he is unworthy to be called an apostle. But note, he still is an apostle. You may feel unworthy, but Jesus who overcame death gets to decide who He will use and how He will use them, and He gives them His own worth as He pleases. He's risen. Why does Paul think that he is unworthy to be called an apostle? He says, because I persecuted the church of God. And I don't know how many of you churchgoers can say, I persecuted the church of God this morning. Maybe. You've probably done so in ways that you don't fully realize. Every time you reject the offer of the gospel, every time... We sin against Jesus every time we rebel against God. I never take anything for granted in our gatherings. There are times I've preached in places where people have actively, violently abused people because they follow Jesus. Who knows? That may be someone here today. It certainly was Paul. Paul persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. The church of God. Think about it. Peter violently defended and then denied Jesus. He did come round. The twelve abandoned Jesus. They came round. James was embarrassed by Jesus and his purported insanity. He came round. But Paul persecuted the followers of Jesus. The church of God. Paul persecuted Peter when Peter was proclaiming Jesus is risen. Paul persecuted James when James was pastoring the Jerusalem church. Paul persecuted the twelve when they were holding things together under the weight of persecution. Paul was the the source in many ways of their grief. The source of their anxiety. Paul persecuted to the point that he was complicit not only in people's imprisonment, but he was complicit in a man's murder. They dragged a man out into the street and they beat him to death with stones in the street. And Paul watched. He took their coats so that they wouldn't get soiled by the splattered blood of a Christ follower. He would, Paul, 
would become leader in the counter-Christian movement. He would get legal authorization to travel to another country in order to find and imprison Christians. Such was his fanatical antichrist zeal. Imagine the guilt, the sorrow, the depression, the trauma, the grief, the shame that follows Paul if he ever pauses to reflect on his sins. He says elsewhere he is the chief of sinners, the worst of them. Friends, God takes people who persecute Him. Paul takes people who persecute His people and he turns them around to proclaim Him. That's the resurrection power. Only a risen Savior can accomplish such a turnaround in someone's life. Paul had been an evil man, a law-abiding man, but an evil man nonetheless. But God saved him. He is now a grace man. He does not use his experience of God's grace as a license to sin, to do evil, to adopt a worldly way of thinking, speaking, or living. He cannot change what he did. He cannot change what that made him. But God's grace has changed what he would go on to do. And God's grace has changed what now made him an apostle. By the grace of God, he therefore says, I am what I am. One who persecuted the church of God. One who now proclaims the gospel of God. So that people, by believing in him, might be saved. Might have life in his name. He is a follower of Christ. He is an apostle. And he says, God's grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In other words, he didn't say, oh, and there may be some of you today who are like that. Um, I believe in Jesus, and so I'm going to attend church once a year. Or twice a year. Or dip in here and maybe there. Just when I feel like it. Rather, he says, I am changed and transformed by the grace of a risen Savior, so I'm going to walk in the newness of resurrection power life, and I am going to work harder than anyone else, including the other apostles. And I can say, although I worked harder than any of them, it wasn't me, it was the grace of God that is with me. Because I really believe that God is gracious. And because I really know and experience the power of His grace in my life. Whether it, then it was I or they doing the preaching, we've preached this message. Jesus died for our sins and He was buried and He's raised. And you believed it. Remember what you believed. Though dead in sin, Paul has been raised to walk in newness of life, never to die in his sins again. He does not retreat into laziness, into sluggishness, into complacency or apathy or any such thing, but he throws himself into grace-driven service and worship, into work, even sacrificially, as a servant leader. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ 
who lives in me, he would say. Um, he, He would believe and exemplify in his life the mentality that says, I am immortal until my work on earth is done. And so he endured all things. He was... He was beaten multiple times, even as Jesus was. He received the 40 lashes, less one. Three times beaten with rods. Once he was stoned and left for dead. Three times he was shipwrecked. A night and a day he was adrift at sea. On frequent dangers, and in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, and from his own people, and from... Not his own people, from Gentiles who were against his own people and were against Christ. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, often in cold and exposure. And apart from these things, the daily anxiety he felt for the churches. He would ask, who is... Who is weak and I'm not weak? Your weakness exhausts me. Who is made to fall? Various things physically and spiritually that are tripping you up in your life, bullying you on the the field of our existence. and, And I'm not indignant. I'm enraged when I see stuff like that, he says. He works hard. Why? Because Jesus is risen. What about when His work is done? Throughout 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is grappling with the reality of our mortality, that you and I will die. But of those who trust in a risen Savior, he does not speak of them as dying, actually. Rather, the language he uses is fallen asleep. Because it's not the end. You will get up. He will raise you up. He emphasizes that death is not the end. That because Christ is risen, we are risen with Him already spiritually. We continue alive in spirit after our body shuts down. And one day we will get back up. Because Christ got back up. For now though, it is for us to work. To work hard, not for gain first, but for God first. Whether there is gain or indeed loss, as there was with Paul, he eventually lost his life. All of us, to preach Christ, to proclaim Christ, to realize anew and afresh the truth that Jesus is risen. In the same way we share by grace through faith in the benefits purchased by the death of Christ, we are assured of those benefits and enjoy the blessings of the resurrection of Christ. We are people of the risen King. That means we have a Savior who is not done. And therefore we as His people are not done. Nor are we done in by anything that might assault us. Christ defeated death, and He has made a way whereby we too may share in that victory. So if we were to reflect back that first Passover without Christ, 
they might have asked one night, what makes this night different from all the rest? One thing is sure, Jesus isn't with us. He's buried. But in three days, everything changed. And we can answer, what makes today different from all the other days? Yesterday, Jesus was dead, but now he is risen. Yesterday, I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but I'm raised to walk in newness of life because I believe in Jesus. What makes today different for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that we would be strengthened and sustained by the truth, the glorious message of the risen Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would be with us, empowering and equipping us for resurrection life. In Jesus' name. Amen.